You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Johannite Church. All right, so I, I had the, the crazy idea uh, to talk about, about polytheism. And to a certain extent, whenever I do a talk for the AJC Conclave, I always like to make it specific to what it is that we do in the AJC. And this lent itself very, very easily to a discussion of the unique practices of the AJC, because all Joanites are monotheists, except for the ones that aren't. But even the ones that are tend to be, okay, let me try this again. Most Joanites are monotheists, except for the polytheists, who are kind of monotheist, but in a sort of polytheistic, let me try this one more time. Some Joanites are polytheists, except for the ones that aren't, and even the ones that aren't tend... It's complicated. We have uh, more than uh, a, a, a complicated relationship with the gods or God. Now, before I talk about polytheism, I want to issue a couple of caveats. Uh, first of all, I am going to be talking more as an historian today. I'm going to look at the, the development of, of polytheism and polytheistic tendencies in monotheism. But I am not an historian. I'm a philosopher and a theologian. I'm not an historian of religion. I'm not an expert on paganism. And to be absolutely frank, I haven't thought this all the way through. Uh, so these are provisional at best. There will be, I think, some hints to my latent Hegelianism. That is to say, I'm going to talk about the, the movement from nature to freedom, about the historical coming to uh, spirit of itself. And I think that much of this is simply shaped by Hegel's own reading of uh, world history. And that's uh, one of my philosophical specialities, and so it, it sort of tends to infect other elements of uh, what I'm talking about. The first distinction that I think needs to be made in talking about polytheism is, of course, between what we call hard polytheism and soft polytheism. In hard polytheism, the gods, the individual gods, are irreducibly divine. And when we look at traditional forms of pagan practice, when we look at traditional forms of polytheism, they tend to fall into this hard polytheist mode so near as we can tell. On the other hand, there is a, a soft polytheism. And I'm using this in not in the, the psychological sense that it's sometimes used in Jungian circles. Uh, where we're talking about the gods as archetypes or the gods as representations of this or that, uh, but rather more in the sense of what is called henotheism or henotheism, uh, which comes from this, this phrase, henastheos, you know, the, the one god. And this is going to include certain kinds of emergence of multiple gods from a, a single source, or uh, other kinds of conceptions of a relationship between a single and multiple gods. So to start with hard polytheism, these are finite forms. 
And what seems to me in my you know, just initial sort of investigation of these various forms of polytheism, and the scope is necessarily limited, is that many of these experience the gods as necessarily finite beings. So for example, when we look at Egyptian uh, polytheism, Egyptian polytheism is very theriomorphic, that the general form of the gods is that of, of beasts. That is to say that they, they are deeply rooted in the natural world. They are natural forms. Often these are manifestations of the particularities of the Egyptian environment. And so we've got river gods and we've got lots and lots of sun gods. Right? This makes sense within the context of the natural environment in which the Egyptians find themselves. And as a result, their gods are very much reflective of natural forces. But we also see among the, the Norse and Teutonic gods representations that are not merely uh, natural forces, but are intimately tied to the finitude of, of the natural world. And so, for example, when we hear about the Götterdämmerung, the twilight of the gods, or Ragnarok, we're given an image of gods who are mortal, who are finite, who are capable of death. I remember learning about the Norse myths when I was very, very young. And one of the most striking things was this, this story of this final battle in which the gods were all killing each other. And then when the dust settles, there are just these two left and they start the cycle over. And so this idea of gods that were mortal, that were finite, that were subject to finitude, was something that I found very, very striking. And I later encountered this again in the archaic Greek conceptions of the gods. And I say the archaic in the sense that the sort of pre-Socratic or pre-Platonic conceptions of the gods. And I think one of the best examples of this is the wonderful and weird play by Aeschylus called Prometheus Bound. It's a wonderful play, it's beautifully written, but of course your main character is literally being chained to a rock in the first scene, which limits some of your possibilities for choreography. But, uh, so your main character is chained to a rock and, and people come in and, and talk to him. But what I find most striking is the conversation between Prometheus and Hermes. So Hermes, the messenger of Zeus, comes in and says, listen, Zeus is willing to forgive everything. You know, just wipe the slate clean, bring it back to Olympus, all will be forgiven. And all you have to do is tell him the name of which of his children is going to overthrow him. And Prometheus is downright rude to Hermes. He calls him errand boy. Right? He's absolutely dismissive of him. And the implication, especially in the reading that this seems to be given in, in Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, is that, that even Zeus, in this archaic conception, is subject to the cycles of nature. That even now, though the gods are immortal, that their reign is necessarily limited. So, yeah, when we look at the history of, of the gods for, uh, you know, the, the predecessors of Zeus, you know, 
Kronos and Uranos, his father and grandfather, were each, you know, king of the gods for a time, and then each one was overthrown. And why should we imagine that that cycle somehow stops with Zeus, that this cycle will continue on and that Zeus too will be overthrown? So we have this, this hard polytheistic conception of the gods in which they, they have their own, their own histories, their own genealogies. If we read Hesiod's Theogony, we get this wonderful description of, of where all of these gods come from, that they are by their very nature beings that have a history, that undergo change, that undergo transformation. And this, to a certain extent, is very alien to those who are only used to Judeo-Christian Islamic conceptions of God, where to, to imply or to state that God undergoes change or that God sort of occurs in history is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous and borders on the blasphemous. But here we have gods that very much have their own lives, their own discrete beings, their own histories. But with... Socrates and Plato with uh, some of our other uh, sort of pre-Socratic philosophers and into the, the Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophers, this hard polytheism begins to soften a little bit. And there is a kind of, uh, there is a kind of, of transition period where we see people like Plato talking about the divine and using the term, you know, both the gods and the god, and in some cases even simply God, as if it were simply understood what he was talking about when he's looking at the unity of God. There is a kind of platonic henotheism, and we're going to talk more about that in just a moment, that seems to be uh, giving given birth to in this particular period. These specific genealogies tell us that the gods are finite, at least in the sense that they have specific origins, that even if they are, are long-lived or, or even immortal, that they have a starting point. And this, again, is going to be very, very different from, for example, Thomistic conceptions of God, where it's impossible to conceive of a God that has a beginning or an end. These are the hard polytheist forms, where the gods are not reducible to some singularity or some one or some unity, that they are always going to be immersed in multiplicity. In the sort of Hegelian, Schillingian dialectical reading of this, that's because they are part of the world of nature and history. And that when we move beyond the, the world of nature and history into the world of freedom, that's when we start to see this soften significantly. I've used this word henotheism or henotheism a couple of times already, and it surprised me. I'd encountered the word before, but I hadn't realized that the first one to use it is actually F.W.J. Schelling. That Schelling talks about henotheism as a kind of polytheism in which there is ultimately a reduction or a reducibility to a single god, or a pantheon of gods that has a single god at its head. He actually uses this to describe the Vedic 
religion. Uh, specifically, there's a passage in the Rig Veda, and the Rig Veda, of course, is one of the most ancient religious texts that we have, probably written somewhere between 1500 and 1200 BCE, where, I'm going to quote briefly here, it says, they call him Indra, Mitra, Varuna, Agni, and he is heavenly, nobly winged Garutman. To what is one, sages give many a title. They call it Agni, Yama, Matarishvan. That there is this conception that we have a single being with many names or many, many manifestations. And for Schelling, this was a transitional move from the hard polytheism where we were simply enmeshed in the cycles of nature to the monotheism of, of Christianity. Certainly, Advaitism in Hinduism, which uh, professes a, a sort of transcendent unity that, that uh, is beyond all multiplicity or duality, is growing out of this conception of uh, the relationship between the one and the many. Another form of this would be the sort of quasi-monotheism, the henotheism of the Emperor Aurelian. Now, Aurelian was born in, in 214, uh, dies in 275. He rules as Augustus from 270 to uh, 275. And I, I know that I'm, I'm sort of moving out of chronology here to talk about Aurelian, but he, he does, I, I think, demonstrate sort of a, a, a paradigmatic example of this kind of henotheism, where the worship of the god Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, is not meant to erase the worship of the other gods, uh, much less so to suggest that the other gods don't exist, but simply to unify the Roman people so that we had one god and one empire. Now, there's some rumor that his mother, Aurelian's mother, that is to say, uh, was a priestess of Sol Invictus. Highly speculative, highly unlikely. Uh, but this idea that you would have a, a unifying social function uh, for religion that drew together all of these disparate peoples from all over the empire under the headship of a single god certainly presages both Constantinian and Justinian uh, sort of conceptions of religion and conceptions of empire. The worship of Sol Invictus was to be the centerpiece, but not the exclusive practice of the empire. Now, of course, when we talked about uh, the sort of platonic uh, henotheism, we're talking about really a sort of transition within a transition that there's the move from uh, the sort of archaic Greek conceptions, which are already moving beyond the sort of purely naturalistic conceptions that we have of, of the gods to a world of freedom. Uh, but we're also then moving towards a more philosophical understanding of what the gods must be. And much of what I see in Plato's description of, of how the gods must function grows, I think, from, from what he's read in Xenophanes. And I will go out on a philosophical limb here and suggest that Xenophanes was at least a henotheist and probably a monotheist. 
Robin Waterfield, who is a brilliant, brilliant scholar on these matters and one of, has written one of the best sort of concise books about pre-Socratic philosophy, disagrees with me absolutely. I, he, he's, he's a staunch defender of the claim that Xenophanes is a, is a, a strong polytheist. But he makes this claim, Xenophanes makes some interesting claims, that the gods, above all, must be good. And this is a striking sort of claim for the period, that, that if the gods are going to be anything at all, they must be good. And beyond that, the gods must be perfectly good. But if the gods are perfectly good, then they share in that perfection. And if they all share in that perfection, aren't they all manifestations of that same perfection? Which is to say, really isn't Xenophanes suggesting that there is ultimately only one possible God. So if the gods are perfectly good, and I think the perfectly is the key element there, I think that this is leading us toward a kind of, of monotheism or henotheism. Plato, of course, takes this up when he puts into the mouth of Socrates certain concerns or suspicions about the qualities of the gods as they're depicted in the Homeric epics, for example. And Dr. Kupperman already referenced this uh, just a, a few moments ago, that, that this is why Plato seems to have such a, a concern about Homer is because we see representations of the gods and heroes acting abominably. I mean, they're just doing things that if any human being would do them, we would consider them to be atrocious people. But somehow it's okay for the gods. And there's a wonderful passage in the Euthyphro where Socrates is talking to Euthyphro. Euthyphro is a priest. And Euthyphro is defending his actions on the basis of the stories that are told about the gods. And Socrates sort of says, clearly I'm paraphrasing here, you don't actually believe that crap, do you? And it's wonderful because, because Euthyphro, he doesn't, doesn't give an inch. That He really just doubles down. He says, no, not only do I believe that crazy crap, there's a whole bunch of secret crazy crap that's even weirder, and I believe that stuff too. So Euthyphro represents this very archaic conception of, of the gods, moving toward this much more philosophical understanding of the gods under the influence of people like Xenophanes and Socrates and Plato. As I already said, Plato sort of slips back and forth between talking about, about theoi, gods, tontheon, the God, and simply Theos, God. And I'm not sure how much I want to read into that. I'm not sure how decisive those formulations are. I think they're subject to a significant degree of interpretation. But of course, we do have the discussion in books six and seven of Republic of the good, the good which is beyond being. And again, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Kupperman's talk flows very, very nicely into some of the things that we're discussing here. This idea of a good which is beyond being, that is, is greater than being in its magnitude and dignity, 
is something that that is is really sort of stretching far beyond the sort of naturalistic forces personified as theriomorphic or anthropomorphic gods that we've seen in the archaic period. The, I don't want to say that Plato equates the good with God. He doesn't. Right? I think that that's a, a sort of first-year undergraduate misconception of, of what he's doing here. But there is this idea that everything ultimately culminates in something singular, something unified. And the image of the sun, the image of the good, is serving precisely this function, I think. Of course, when this gets taken up in Plotinus, Plotinus is going to emphasize this singular nature of the one. And for a better reading of that, I would, of course, defer to Dr. Kupperman. I would also sort of, just to reach a little bit far afield, point to practices that appear to be polytheistic, but have a, a strong monotheistic element that underlies them. And I'm thinking particularly of the practices of Voodoo and Santeria, where we have, you know, we have the Loa or the Orisha, where there's all kinds of multiplicity. I mean, there's multiplicity within multiplicity. You have a multiplicity of gods, and even those individual gods have a multiplicity of paths or facets. But always behind them, always lurking somewhere in the background is Bondu, obviously uh, corruption of the French, le bon Dieu, you know, the good god, uh, or Olojimare, the, the uh, Ifa sort of singular god. So even in cultures as far afield as, as Norway and, and Nigeria, we're seeing the same kind of, of movement and transformation. So if this gives us a sort of brief account of the forms of, of polytheism with which many of us might be most familiar, I think the other thing that we need to look at, especially in trying to suss out how this has an impact on the theology and the practice of the AJC, are polytheistic tendencies within monotheism. That is to say, to look at it from the other direction. Now, clearly, if we're going to talk about monotheism, we have to look to the first great monotheistic religion, Judaism. And, you know, on a lot of these points, I would, I would uh, again, defer to, uh, to Ed Aitkins. I know that he's uh, uh, much better versed in this uh, than I certainly am. Uh, so if I make any sort of egregious errors, um, you know, don't tell me because I'll just be crushed. But when we look at the descriptions of the one singular God in the Old Testament, we're struck, I think, very, very first of all, by the multiplicity of names by which this individual god is called. And I, I've talked about the story of Melchizedek uh, on a number of occasions because I, I just adore it. I think it, it's one of my favorite sort of stories from the Old Testament. But we're told right off the bat that Melchizedek is the, the priest of El Elyon, of the Most High God. Which is interesting because that doesn't appear to be a name that's been used for the Hebrew God at this point. So this is clearly indicating that there's a, at least a shift in emphasis, if not a completely different being at stake here. 
And yet Melchizedek and Abram, you know, sacrifice together. They clearly recognize one another's spiritual authority. And this would seem to indicate that there is a possibility that that the monotheism of Judaism might actually be more henotheistic. That, excuse me, that is to say that it might be oriented more towards the idea that there is one God above other gods, that the reality of the other gods is not in question, that sure, yeah, there are other gods out there, but our one God is the important one, that the one God takes a kind of, of headship or supremacy. Um, so there are references to other gods that take them very, very seriously. Of course, there are all of these you know, delightful references to Baal, right? And it is in a sense in which the kind of sense that we see in Christianity later on where, well, yes, there are these people over here and they worship a different god and that god's not real. To the extent even of saying, oh, well, if you worship that god over there, you're an atheist because you believe in a god that doesn't exist, therefore you don't believe in any gods. Right? So they're talking about saying, well, over here we worship our god and those people over there, they worship Baal. Right? But not with the implication that Baal is a false god in the sense that he doesn't exist. He's just teaching false things. He's leading them down the garden path. So uh, obviously this is open to a great deal of speculation and a great deal of interpretation. But it seems to me at least that there is at least some perhaps begrudging recognition of the existence of these other gods. I will mention very, very briefly a point that is often brought up in, sometimes in New Age uh, uh, contexts of the use of the, of the plural form Elohim to talk about God. And I think a lot of people who want to see in Judaism a kind of, of polytheism possibly as a defense for or support for their own polytheism in a monotheistic world, um, they seize on this, this plural here, the Elohim. Well, that's plural. That means that they're talking about lots and lots of gods. Um, as best as it's been uh, uh, explained to me and as best as I can understand it, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I, uh, I have to sort of take other people's word for this, that this plural is a plural of intensification, that, that we're talking about the greatness of God there. So that I believe that that's a bit of a, a, of a rabbit hole that I wouldn't want to, to head down into. So we can nonetheless see, I think, at least inklings either of, of a polytheism that is historically overcome in Judaic uh, monotheism, that is to say that we can see uh, an historical progression from one to the other without placing a whole lot of value judgment on that, or that really still within the practice and theology of Judaism that there are still these, these elements of multiplicity that never quite go away, that are still sort of part of that, that strong monotheistic faith. Of course, the one of the children of Judaism is Christianity. And Christianity, again, emphasizes the singularity, the unity of the one God, except when it talks about the Trinity. And when we talked extensively about the Trinity the other day within the context of our own statement of principles, 
this was a really contentious sort of point. To what extent does the division of God into three persons disrupt or violate the unity of the one God? And wouldn't it be better or is it permissible or is it somehow okay to talk about God merely in terms of this oneness and set aside this Trinitarian structure? So thinking about the trinity of persons within the divine Godhead already sort of disrupts or undermines any kind of pure Unitarianism. And the Unitarians certainly staked out their own position over and against Trinitarian uh, theology. But there's also the, the sort of polytheistic tendency that I see in the writings of the great Hesychast Gregory Palamas and talking about the distinction between the essence of God, God as what it is, and God's energies, the manifestation of God's presence in the world. Now, this orthodox distinction separates out these specific and very unique energies, these very specific and unique manifestations over and against a unified God, which is going to always contain all of them and makes uh, an ontological distinction between the essence and, and the energies. Nonetheless, I think this opens a certain possibility for, for something that, that at least isn't narrowly conceived uh, a, a strict monotheism. There is, of course, also the emergence in, I think primarily in the, the 20th and the 21st century, of what's sometimes referred to as Christopaganism. That is to say, uh, taking the neopaganism of uh, you know, the sort of reconstructionist sort uh, and saying, well, I want to be a Christian within the context of, of a, a pagan understanding of the world, that the God that is Christ is one God among others, and it is simply the path that I choose to take, and I could have just as easily taken one of these, these other paths, and that there is a kind of embracing tolerance to that kind of Christopaganism. Certainly, I, I'm not going to pass judgment on this. Uh, it does... It does seem to fly in the face of a couple of thousand years of specifically Christian theology. But if we weren't comfortable with that, well, then we wouldn't be sitting at an AJC conclave. Uh, so I think that there, there is room, uh, even within the great monotheistic faiths, uh, to uh, adapt ourselves to certain kinds of multiplicity that al can allow us to have a more profound and all-embracing conception of divinity. Certainly within, and I always like to, to bring this in at the end of all of these talks that I've given, within esotericism widely construed, there is always a tension, I think, between monotheism and polytheism. One of the ways in which esotericism seeks to reconcile this is by talking about the synthetic unity of all religions. That when we look at, at the multiplicity of religions, we look at Christianity and the Vedic religion and Judaism, especially in its 
you know, its ex external forms, and we look at Islam, and we look at Buddhism, and we look at all of this, this wonderful and beautiful panoply of, of practices and gods, that what's really going on when we look at that from the esoteric dimension is that these are all simply facets of a single gem, that there is really just one truth at the heart of, of all of these practices. The Theosophical Society uh, always emphasized that there is uh, no religion greater than truth. Uh, what, what's the actual phraseology? Does anybody? That, that no religion higher than truth. Is that, yeah, that's the, what I was looking for. That, that religion, to use their terminology, is simply the unique cultural and historical manifestation of that truth showing itself in the world, but that the truth was always, was always singular. I think that also when we look at uh, esoteric practices like hesychasm and we look at the, the, the distinction between energy and, and essence, this can allow a certain kind of esoteric interpretation of the activity of God in the world that isn't reducible to singularity. Within form, uh, structures like the uh, Golden Dawn system, we see the use of the god forms, especially Egyptian god forms within the initiation rituals of the GD. And I wouldn't want to, to uh, accuse and I think that they would think of it in those way, in that way, the original practitioners of the Golden Dawn of polytheism. I think most of them considered themselves uh, fairly good monotheists. But there isn't really a, there isn't really a, a kind of, um, th there's no collision there. There's no, if there's tension, possibly, but there's, there's certainly no, no violence between uh, sort of the, the monotheism that they espoused and the, the use of the God forms, because the God forms very much appear as manifestations of the one. Of course, to disrupt all of this is the practice of so-called chaos magic, where images of the gods, practices unique to specific gods, uh, even the assumption of god forms and, and even sacrificial kinds of rituals are undertaken not because of any ontological claim of the existence of those gods, but simply because of the usefulness of those practices within particular cultural contexts or certain psychological contexts. And I think that in many cases, as much as I think many of us in the AJC steer away from those sort of practices, they can be instructive in thinking about the distinction between the kinds of relationships that it's possible to have with the divine and what the divine is in itself, and making clear that we are always, to a greater or lesser extent, looking at the map and not the territory. So I think that we can look at the tension between monotheism and polytheism to create what is possibly a, a false either or from both directions to look at, at the sort of unifying functions that we see within polytheistic faiths, but also look at the irreducible multiplicity that we see within uh, Unitarian or monotheistic faiths. Within the context of the AJC, 
open as we are to such a wide range of, of beliefs, opinions, and practices that looking through these kinds of options and understanding the richness of the tradition that gives rise to them can only make our own practice stronger. So that's really all I wanted to do, as was with, the, uh, with my first talk a couple of days ago. I think the best part is going to be the question and answer. So at this point, I'm going to uh, open it up to, to any questions. And I can't see, so I don't know. To, I see a sort of vague waving hand way in the back. I think that's Joey. Yeah. It's in the Gnostic Gospels by Marvin Meyer. I'm, I, to claim I'm, I'm familiar with it in the sense that I know it exists. But, he, but it, the whole, I don't want to say the whole book, but a big, huge book, part of the book is him saying, like, all right, this person in this story is Zeus, and this person in this story is, is Priapus, and this person in this story, and he just kind of does that mm -hmm. uh, in comparison. Now, I was kind of wondering if you were familiar with the book and where that came from, like in time and space, because it kind of seems to be going along with what you're saying, but it also seems to be from a different... Yeah, I can, I can certainly see the parallels, and I'm, I'm simply going to have to plead ignorance here. I just, I'm not familiar enough with it, and I haven't looked at it specifically through that lens enough to say, but I think that that's certainly a fruitful direction to sort of expand and pursue what, you know, what I'm talking about here. Um, there is always, of course, the, the practice of syncretism, right? Uh, and, and I could have said more about this within the context, for example, of Santeria, where, where there is the syncretism between the, the Orisha and the Catholic saints, right? So you say, well, you know, we're going to use this name, but it's really this guy, and we're going to use this name, but it's really this. And if you look at it, that these two are actually the same. That kind of syncretism may, it may stretch no further than that. Um, it may run much, much deeper than that. I would, have to, I would have to go through and look at the text more carefully. So, your eminence, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I have an answer to this, but I'm interested to, to hear your answer. Where would, uh, where would perennialism, traditionalism, uh, fit, fit in that spectrum? I mean, you know, my idea, I guess, if you were to go back to the Blavatsky, no religion higher than truth, or maybe Dion Fortune's thing of religion being a cultural manifestation mm -hmm. of, of, you know, one particular spiritual element, uh, where would where would traditionalism or perennialism might be a better thing fit? Well, that's what I was trying to talk about, talking about the, the synthetic unity of all religions, because that is a, a concept that comes straight out of this traditional, traditionalist, perennialist tradition. Um, and we can see this in somebody like Guénon, who, you know, sort of starts out uh, as a kind of, I mean, he even starts, I think, in the traditionalist Catholic sort of uh, sphere, moves into the, the Gnostic sphere, and then ultimately becomes uh, a Sufi and spends you know, much of his life in, in Cairo, uh, ultimately as the head of a Sufi order. Um, he, he emphasizes very, very strongly, and perennialism, I think, in general, emphasizes very, very strongly the idea of this, of different faiths as cultural and historical and linguistic and temporal manifestations of a truth that underlies all of all things. And so when you 
part the veil and you, you look behind those external aspects, what you see is the esoteric truth that is always the same, that they, to which they give the name the tradition. Because of course for a traditionalist there's only ever one tradition, right? It's, it's not multiple. Um, so I think that that's, that's part, that, that's one way that esotericism sort of struggles with and, and ultimately tries to reconcile this multiplicity. Not in the sense of moving from multiple gods to one god, but multiple faiths to a, to a single truth. And I see the, the frantic flailing of, of Joey McCausland again. I, I, was, I was hoping to go back to your definition of perfectly good. Um, in Xenophanes. Well, and I was wondering if when you said that, did you mean perfectly good in a virtuous sense? Or did you mean perfectly good in a in the way that Loki does some horrible things, but it's perfectly good for the benefit of the world in the end? When Xenophanes and, and, and Socrates and Plato are talking about it, they are certainly talking about it in a moral sense. Okay. That, that's definitely what they mean. Uh, and, and my argument has always been that if uh, that really sort of covers the extent to what God must be, is this perfect goodness, and given the role that the good as such plays in, in Plato, I would see that as all-encompassing, then what, would we, what we would say is God is that which is perfectly good. If that's all that God is, is that perfect goodness, and I say all that that is, of course, it encompasses all things, right? If you've got two things that are perfectly good, then there's no difference between them. And if there's no difference between them, how can you say that they're two things, right? You, you can't have two beings or, or even two, being, of course, is the wrong word here, the good is beyond being, but if you have two of anything, that, are, that share all of the same qualities. Right? They have no qualities that are different. You're talking about the same thing. You're talking about two names given to a single thing. Uh, so ultimately, that's why I make the claim that, that Xenophanes uh, is at least uh, a henotheist, if not, if not a monotheist. Um, like I said, Robin Waterfield, for whom I have uh, nothing but respect and admiration, uh, completely disagrees. Any other questions? All right, I, th I, I think we have things to do. Right. Fun things to do. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. The I'm going to attempt to.